Happy Denim Day, everyone, and welcome to the Phoenix Cast. I'm your host today, Rachel Reed Maloney, and I'm here today with Matthew Bureski, senior staff attorney at the local nonprofit law firm, Rocky Mountain Victim Law Center. Matthew, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, thank you, Rachel. As Rachel said, my name is Matthew Bureski. I'm an attorney with the Rocky Mountain Victim Law Center. I've been at the Rocky Mountain Victim Law Center for approximately two years with kind of a break in between there. Before that, at TESA, which is like a shelter for individuals experiencing domestic violence. And I was a district attorney before that. And um, just kind of a way of a long introduction before, uh, after I graduated high school, I did join the military and I did about 10 Mm -hmm. years there before uh, I decided to go to law school and become an attorney. Thank you, Matthew, for sharing all that about yourself. Listeners, if you weren't already aware, along with today being Denim Day, which if you don't know what Denim Day is, head to our Instagram to get the cliff notes about the history of Denim Day. This week is National Crime Victims' Rights Week. During National Crime Victims' Rights Week, folks within the legal system, nonprofits, and other organizations in the community reflect on and acknowledge their commitment to supporting victims and survivors of crime and honor folks in the community who serve and support survivors. In honor of National Crime Victims' Rights Week, Denim Day, and Sexual Assault Awareness Month, we wanted to record an episode informing folks about Colorado's Victim Rights Act, also referred to as the VRA. Matthew, many of our listeners may not be familiar with the VRA and what it all entails. Can you give us a quick overview of how the VRA came to be in our country and Colorado? Yeah, so the VRA Victims' Rights Act Uh, It was enacted in Colorado in 1993. We were one of the first states to enact a crime victim's protections. It is actually in our constitution of the state of Colorado. It's in our Bill of Rights. So that's kind of a long explanation. But how victim rights in general kind of came into being is back uh, when Ronald Reagan was president, he was shot at and he was having a lot of trouble finding out what was going on with his case. And he was the president of the United States. And and that was concerning to himself just because he should be able to get information. So he couldn't imagine what would happen with other people. He started a presidential task force to study kind of what's going on with victims um, in, in the criminal justice system. And they found that victims were treated very poorly. They were basically being used as evidence, you know, just something to be get a conviction and move on. Uh, so out of that kind of this whole national movement of rights, you know, the, there's a, a federal victims rights act and several other states have different laws and rights act, but Colorado is one of the first to really enact that. And what it does is it kind of gives victims the opportunity to be part of the case, to not just be evidence anymore, but to actually have a dog in the fight. if you will. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. Like you were saying, too, he was a president. You would expect like there might even be leniency like, hey, we don't normally give this to survivors, but here we'll give you some information. But to hear that even he was just excluded completely from that process. um, I'm glad to hear that, you know, having that experience, he used that as a way to try to support survivors that came after him and making sure that they got what they needed. And with that in mind, what crimes fall under Colorado's Victim Rights Act? And what stage in the investigation process when a crime is being investigated determines what crime is considered a victim rights act crime versus not a VRA crime? 
Yeah. So the Colorado is unique in in the way that we actually um, list out every crime that is considered a victim rights crime. For the most part, victim rights crime are crimes where it's like a a crime against another person. So like an assault, a harassment sometimes can be if it's a domestic violence situation. Uh, Abuse of elderly is one. But, you know, your big ones, murder, of course, your I already said assault, but your sexual assaults, those kind of things, those all fall under the Victims' Rights Act. And once that, it, once it's determined by the police that there's probable cause to charge the crime, and they charge it as one of those victims' rights crimes, then that's when the victims' rights uh, attach. Um, of course, you know each player has a different process, or each player has a different um, role to play as far mm-hmm. as what they have to do under the victims' rights. But generally, once the crime has been charged as a victim of rights, crime is when those rights will attach. Okay. And yeah, and generally, so it's when it's charged, not so much in the investigation stage. Did I hear that correctly? Yes, but I think there's some nuance there mm-hmm. because if it's being investigated, but it's really pretty certain that it's going to be charged that way, then I think yeah. the rights could attach. Okay. Um, there's an argument to be made. There's no hard and fast rule exactly i mean the the rule is is like these are the crimes and so you'd have to have a, somebody charged with those crimes for it to attach uh-huh. but the police should still be honoring you know at least some of the intent of the vra if they have reason to believe that it might be a vra crime okay yeah that makes sense yeah that's really helpful especially i think for folks who might be listening who might be wondering oh does something that happened to me apply so they also have a good idea of when it might apply and when it may not yeah, like one of the core tenets of the Victims' Rights Act is to treat victims with fairness, dignity, and respect. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, that starts at the reporting stage. Um, so, you know, the police should, at a minimum, listen to what's going on and take it seriously. Or if it if it's one of those crimes, you know, if it's someone stole your credit card, not VRA, but yeah, any of those ba- other crimes, I think that the that those obligations remain on the police at that time. Awesome. And once a crime is determined to be a VRA crime, like you mentioned in those couple of examples you provided, what rights are given to survivors under the VRA? So I heard one of the ones you listed was dignity and respect for survivors. What are some other ones that are under the VRA? Yeah. So a couple, you know, the the really big ones, and there's quite a slew, but to be free from intimidation and harassment Mm -hmm. um, throughout, you know, the process. There's also the right to be heard. So certain critical stages, which are defined as, you know, for example, I'll give you a couple critical stages, but for example, like a motions hearing involving a victim, personal records or something like mm-hmm. that, the victim mm-hmm. has a right to be heard on that. The victim has a right to be heard if, if the trial is going to be extended out. And the victim does have a right, for example, to swift and, and fair resolution of the proceeding. It doesn't really override the defendant's right to a fair trial, but they do have the right to that swift and, and, and fair resolution. Victims also have the right to restitution. That's repayment for any kind of pecuniary loss that they suffered as a result. Doesn't include pain and suffering or any of those uh, punitive kinds of damages, just like what your actual losses were, like medical expenses, those mm-hmm. kind of things. Victims have the right to consult with the district attorney before the district attorney makes any sort of di- disposition in the case. So if the district attorney is going to dismiss the case, you know, you have the right to consult with them and uh, at least get them to tell you why they're doing that. 
if they're going to offer a plea agreement, they should talk to the victim first before offering the plea agreement to the defendant. Doesn't mean that the district attorney has to do what the victim wants, but the the district attorney does have to at least consider what the victim's input is. Definitely. Yeah, that's really good to hear, especially for the district attorney side. I know many folks, when trying to decide whether or not to go to law enforcement, part of the reason why they might be hesitant or want to is because they want charges filed, or maybe they're uncertain about how it would work moving forward in a court system. So it's good to hear that the VRA has some specific guidelines for, it sounds like, district attorneys about how to be working with survivors. Yes, it it is helpful for survivors to be part of that case and to feel like they have at least a little bit of control in such an uncontrollable situation. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And with that in mind, Matthew, how would you say that your role as a victim rights attorney is different from a district attorney's? I think a lot of folks believe that the district attorney is the person who's actually representing them and advocating for them in court. So how does your role differ from the district attorney's role? Yeah. So the district attorney, at least in Colorado, they're county employees. So they represent the people of Colorado or of their county. They don't represent the victim. I mean, in a way, I mean, because they're prosecuting a crime against somebody. So in a way, they're, they are advancing a, a victim's interest if the victim wants a person prosecuted. Now, sometimes district attorneys will go against what victims want and prosecute somebody, even if the victim doesn't want that to happen. Yeah. Um, but in general, you know, the DA, that's them. They're a government employee. They they have their own goals, which is, you know, for the people of Colorado. Me yeah. as a victim's rights attorney, I represent the actual individual victim, which means I have a duty of confidentiality with the victim. I have the ability to advocate for what that victim wants, whereas a district attorney might be limited on what they can say, those kind of things, or what they can ask for. I actually represent the victim. So, you know, for I'll give you a good example here, or an example is people will talk to a victim advocate at the district attorney's office, and that information has to be disclosed to the defendant. Mm-hmm. Now, a victim advocate who's with like our organization, Rocky Mountain Victim Law Center, or like an attorney like me, we have a duty of confidentiality to not share that information unless the victim or survivor wants us to share that. So I think that's a really big difference um, is that you can actually talk to somebody who's an attorney who understands the legal system and all of that stuff, but not have to worry about it getting turned over to the defense or that that person um, somehow has a different interest that's not aligned with what the client's interests are. Thank you for going into all that. I think that's really helpful because like I mentioned earlier, I think there's some confusion about what the role of the district attorney is and what they're supposed to do for survivors in their system. So it's good to have that clarification about how you're different from a district attorney. And with that, in mind, how does your role as a victim rights attorney differ from the role of a survivor advocate or a legal advocate like you were talking about just a second ago? Yes. So one big difference is, uh, you know, I'm a licensed attorney, which means I can actually file motions. I can speak in front of the court. I, I have that kind of knowledge of that legal, even though advocates do a lot of times know all the legal kind of terms, um, I work at them every day. So I it differs because I'm I'm actually licensed to go out there and speak in front of the court, whereas an advocate can be there and help express your opinion and all of that, but they can't practice law without the without a license. So 
that's kind of the difference um, really there. Okay, awesome. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. Um, So we talked a lot about what the Victim Rights Act is and your role as a victim rights attorney. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience and what are some common VRA violations that you've seen as you've been doing victim rights work? Yes. So a lot of times what I think one of the most common things I see is like uh, the failure to keep victims informed of what's Mm -hmm. going on. A lot of times when somebody's gone through these kind of situations, there's trauma that's happening and they don't always catch everything that's being said. But a lot of times the district attorney isn't saying things. They might be a new attorney. They might not know that the Victims' Rights Act applies in certain cases or things. So that's really the biggest one is like just failure to kind of communicate and keep the victim in the loop or, you know, making changes without telling the victim at all, Mm -hmm. um, you know, last minute, like switching a plea agreement without, you know, at least consulting with the victim. I mean, it's inevitable that the plea agreement might switch, but the law does say you got to consult with that victim. I have also seen some jurisdictions try to charge victims for an initial police report. If it's a victim rights crime, that initial police report's free. So I've seen that happen. But yeah, I'd say really the failure to communicate is kind of the biggest one that that I've been involved with. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear. I wonder, I'm sure folks who are listening who may be survivors and have navigated the system themselves, maybe hearing you say like, yeah, these are things we see often, unfortunately. Not that it makes it right, but hopefully validates like, hey, this is something that it does is happening and there are folks who can help. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely what we could, you know, do is even if we don't fully like as an organization, if we don't fully engage, we can help do that outreach help get that communication, that bridge, because mm-hmm. sometimes that's all it is, is is just to the people just need to be connected. The DA and the victim need to be connected. Things are fine. It's just mm-hmm. there's for some reason, some barrier there. So we can always help with that kind of thing. And then, you know, if there's more egregious violations and things like that, then that's when we can come in, start talking about filing, you know, into the case, doing things like that mm-hmm. to hopefully correct any victim rights violations before before it's essentially too late. Definitely. And it actually kind of leads really well into my next question for you. And you've answered this a little bit, but if there's anything else you'd like to add, please do. So let's say a survivor calls Rocky Mountain Victim Law Center and they ask how they can advocate to law enforcement to enforce their rights or the district attorney's office, et cetera. What information or resources would you provide to them? So it depends on kind of where the case is, like what stage it's it's at, because if it's with the district attorney's office already, it's a charged crime and they're just looking to kind of communicate and find out what's going on. The victim advocates at the district attorney's office, those are a good resource who can kind of give you that basic information. And of course, I'm talking like there's no egregious activity going on behind the scenes. If it's with law enforcement, they also have victim advocates. Um, that kind of serve that role as well. So, um, and I'm pretty sure most jurisdictions have them, but that would kind of be where you'd want to start the process is reaching out to the those kind of individuals, the ones who are kind of trained to work with the victim or not work with, but like at least be that conduit to kind of start that communication and then work from really from there. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so it sounds like it's just pretty much case by case. And as you assess all the moving pieces going on, that would better inform what information or resources you would provide to folks. 
Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a moving target because there are so many rights and there's so many stages in a criminal case yeah. that different things, that things change all the, all the time. You might have horrible communication with the district attorney and get that fixed and sorted. And then all of a sudden now you're getting subpoenas for medical records that the survivor doesn't want the defendant to have or requests for addresses that might be confidential or things like that. So there's, there's a lot of different hurdles, especially around privacy, that can pop up at different stages in the case. Definitely. And you kind of mentioned how the legal system and violations of survivors' VRA rights can be traumatic for folks. What impacts have you seen VRA violations have on survivors navigating the criminal legal system? I've seen, I mean, I, I, I basically no justice is what the worst I've seen is, you know, when an office might decide to not prosecute at all, even though it's, you know, a good case or, and it's really well founded. I've, I've actually seen those where it's just like, okay, well, you know, we're the DA. We don't care what you have to say. We don't care what you have to think. And we're going to dismiss the case. And, and, that, and that's obviously devastating. Yeah. Um, to people like why would you want to report if you have an office like that now fortunately that's not common it's i've seen it that's all i can say <laughs> yeah <laughs> not common but it, it has happened and another thing too is is sometimes some da's offices are overworked mm-hmm. so they don't spend the time on the cases like they should so you kind of get like it like you might get for the same crime in one jurisdiction a completely different outcome in another jurisdiction yeah and that can kind of impact people too, because it's like, well, why is this guy getting probation when if it was in another jurisdiction, he would be getting prison mm-hmm. um, kind of thing. But that's, you know, part of that is also just keeping that communication open because the court can hear you too. I mean, that's your right to address the court as well and to say these kind of things when, when and if it happens. Yeah. And let's say, for example, someone ha- does everything in their power to try to enforce their victim rights. Maybe they're advocating and communicating with law enforcement or the DA's office, and they're just not getting anything out of that. And again, they're still not having their rights upheld. What are some options they have with getting support and moving forward? Well, of course, you can always contact Rocky Mountain Victim Law Center, and we can help navigate or help at least staff and see how we can help you. Yeah. At some point, cases can progress to where there's there's no fixing it you know you can't go back in time Mm -hmm. so there is a process in colorado called the victims rights act um, complaint process basically Mm -hmm. the department of criminal justice it's basically kind of a prophylactic trying to you you make your report it won't impact how your case is going but hopefully it'll result in future cases by that agency or organization following the vra better or something of that nature Okay. Wow. That's great. So it sounds like a potential outcome would be like, maybe there might be changes to VRA legislation in the future, depending if someone's complaint is found, I don't want to say credible, but like they say, yes, this is a VRA violation by this office or this law enforcement agency. Not so much like legislative change, but it would be Mm -hmm. like a policy change within the department itself or something. So for example, the they might you know initiate another uh, process to of notification of, of victims or something or retrain on the victims rights act or something like that um the worst absolute worst case scenario is it can be referred to the governor and wow. then the, the attorney general can step in that's very rare it's only mm-hmm. happened once 
Wow. Yeah, that's good to know. Sounds like there's a lot of different avenues that could potentially take. I think the big thing, though, the big takeaway on the VRA complaint process is it won't help your case because your case is going to go through and the VRA process is going completely independent. Yeah. So it almost sounds like, you know, the VRA, you can make that file that complaint. And even if it's founded that your rights were violated, it's not going to impact what's happening with your case. It just supports folks in the future who choose to report and go through the legal process. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. And how long on average would you say that the VRA complaint process takes once someone files their complaint? I think that's kind of a difficult question to answer because first, when you do the complaint, generally DCJ or the people who take the complaint will maybe try to work work things out between you and the agency. They might try to do that. But yeah. then, you know, your complaint, if it's if it's good enough, it'll go to the committee and then then the agency gets to respond to it. So it could take a couple months for all that to go through. And then the VRA subcommittee, which is the people who meet and actually vote if it's founded, if there's a violation, they they will vote, but then they'll also have to come up with the, the remedies for them to fix. And then you'll have to wait while the organization fixes it and then provides that back to that subcommittee. Okay. Yeah. Sounds like a pretty lengthy process then. Yes, it can be. Yeah. So it sounds like if someone were to file a complaint, just kind of like don't expect anything immediately. Just kind of like, you know, sit and wait, see what happens kind of thing. Yes, unfortunately. And we've talked a lot today about the Victim Rights Act, some options folks have if they want to advocate for their rights, get support with advocating for those rights in the VRA complaint process. So if our listeners leave today and they're like, I just want to learn more about this topic, where could they go potentially online or in the community to learn more about the Victim Rights Act here in Colorado? Well, of course, people can always come to our website, rmvictimlaw.org, to learn more about victims' rights. They can also, Colorado does allow free access to the statutes. So if anyone's interested, they can look up, you know, CRS 24, 4.130. 302, 303, um, et cetera, those kind of things. But then also, uh, if they're a victim of a crime, the police or whoever should provide a victim's rights pamphlet too. So that's also another resource. But, you know, our our organization and then, you know, most victim-centered organizations like domestic violence, shelters, those kind of things, they have at least some knowledge of it or at least a way to get you some more information as well. But, you know, if Online, of course, (laughs) how everyone looks up everything is a good way to find it too. Definitely. And listeners, I'll make sure to reference some of the resources Matthew just mentioned in our podcast description in case you want to go there and follow those links to learn more about the VRA. And before we conclude, um, I'd love for our listeners to learn a bit more about you, if you're comfortable with that. Okay. Um, So correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem really passionate about supporting victims and survivors of crime. What joys do you get from doing this work? Yeah, thank you. I um, The joy I get is seeing a victim go from kind of the beginning of the process to the end of the process, because a lot of times there'll be somebody that, you know, I'll meet and there'll be, there's a lot of trauma going on. There's a lot of maybe anger. There's a lot of um, other things kind of happening. And to be able to work with that person, get them, you know, some of the answers they want and or don't even get them answers they don't want, but at least they have the answers and they they understand that they're part of the process and they can be, you know, 
and that they have a little bit of power has, can really impact people um, and help them kind of get that their own independent footing, especially when, you know, such a traumatic event has happened. People don't just completely change, you know, working with an attorney or anything like that, but I can take some of that burden from them and I can help, you know, they, they don't have to remember every court date. They don't have to do all that because I'm there to help them. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate, you know, when at the end of the trial where, you know, they say thank you or thank you for being there. Like those, those things are powerful to me. Definitely. Yeah. And what are some of the challenges you get from doing this work? Because it does sound like it can be challenging at times. So what would you say some of the challenges of supporting survivors who are victims of crime have been? I'd say like one of, you know, that secondary trauma is always kind of a, um, uh, an, you know, an issue. Some of these crimes are really egregious. Sitting through a preliminary hearing and seeing someone being murdered, you know, is not something you want to see every yeah. day or what have you. So there is that Kind of secondary trauma element there. And then there's also like, sometimes clients, have, they misplace their anger or frustration. And you know, they're not mad at you. They're just acting out at you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that I guess that's an, another thing. I don't, I can't control the system. I can't control what the district attorney does. I can just help advocate for you and fight for you. But um, sometimes, you know, people get overwhelmed with emotion and then they'll say things or or what have you. And so that can sometimes be a challenge just working as a lawyer in general, those kind of things happen. So, Yeah, thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that with us. Is there anything else you would like to share about the work you do or the VRA before we conclude today? Not that I can think of. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Matthew, for taking time out of your busy schedule to educate us about the VRA and allow us to learn more about the work you do for victims and survivors in Colorado. Thank you. I'm glad that you had me. And listeners, if something you heard today reminded you about a personal experience you have had with interpersonal violence or a loved one's experience with interpersonal violence, please contact our 24-7 helpline number at 303-556-2255. The Phoenix Center is here to support you as you process your or your loved one's experiences with interpersonal violence. And like I mentioned, I will also add the information about the different resources for the VRA in our podcast description that Matthew mentioned earlier. And I'll also add Rocky Mountain Victim Law Center's information in case you are hoping to get in touch with someone there and maybe process your own legal case a little bit more with them. If you aren't already following the Phoenix Center on Instagram, you can follow us at Phoenix Center. My name is Rachel Reed Maloney, and thank you for listening. I look forward to learning with you next time.